0: Well, Jonas, Valas, you, you seen
1: us? We sitting here, i supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. I interrupted
2: your questions yet? Yes.
1: No, I haven't. You've interrupted my answers with your questions, and play then
0: Very I... well. Uh, ba- 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 Valas, whatever his name is. Kwame Brown is gone. The city of Angels, Hollywood, just should be celebrated. Throw a parade already, whether you win the championship or not. This man was a bona fide scrub. He can't play. Not
1: a game, not a game, not a game. We talking about
0: practice. my favorite city to visit in the world, Toronto. Jonas Vasu inuansas <laughs> What is good, beautiful people, and welcome to another edition of the Warm Up Podcast, brought to you by me, Hayden Kim, and Mason Azos. We are recording on a Thursday night. I'm here in Atlanta, Georgia. Mason is in Eugene, Oregon. They are on the cusp of graduation congratulations to both you guys and to both you guys i mean we are joined by none other than aaron nelson one of our great friends a rising sports photographer as well as a concert photographer aaron how are you doing today and welcome to the One woman podcast
1: oh thank you hayden i'm doing well and it's uh it's good to hear from you i appreciate the graduation i don't even know what to call that because to be honest as as much as it is a congratulations it's kind of a
0: scary thing but but i thank you Absolutely. And Aaron, I want to start with you. And the reason why we brought you on is because not only do you have a very interesting background in photography, but you also have a rising career. And I think that from my perspective, as someone who also you're currently working at Daily Emerald, I also went through four years of that um I understand the value and the the great and, and invaluable experiences that you've you've gone through and will continue to go through in this in this industry. Um Aaron, I want to start by just like letting you introduce yourself a little bit. I know that you are uh, kind of finishing things up with the Emerald. I know you've done sports, I know you've done concerts, I know you've done basically anything there is to do at this student newspaper locally. Um and I also know that you've done work for Daily Beat. So um just kind of break down what you're doing, how old you are, and kind of how what got you into photography.
1: Yeah, sure, so uh, I'm a 22 year old, ridiculous college student. Uh, Just like many other people, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Photography was not a thing that I grew up interested in whatsoever. Um, I came to school and it was just one of those things that you know, I met people who were pretty good at it already and it just clicked. I think I've always kind of had an eye for visual art in general, but um, especially I've been drawn to motion. So, you know, photography is a good way to just capture that moment. Um, so it's, it's been, it's been interesting. Like you said, I've been uh, dabbling in all kinds of things. I grew up loving sports. So I've always been just kind of naturally drawn to different athletic events. Um, but kind of outside of that, I've always loved music that I think the music industry is one of those things that just fascinates me as an industry. I love, you know, talking about, the way that music fits into people's daily lives, the way that musicians, you know, they battle each other out and try to take over an industry. So I love trying to capture that in a, in a concert setting. You know, it's it's often one of the worst places to take photographs, but that kind of <laughs> makes it a challenge. And I always like to try to do my best with it. I want to talk about music with you really quick.
2: And sort of like, because you did say that, that was kind of one of your passions. And and so when you're at a concert, you said it's very difficult to take like good pictures. It's a bad setting. Tell me about like why it's a bad setting and, and really how you kind of find your niche in music setting and, 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 and how, you,
1: how you're how you able to take these beautiful photos. Yeah, sure. I mean, why is it a bad setting? Go to a concert hall. They're pretty much all <laughs> as dark as you could possibly get. And I honestly feel like they do that on purpose sometimes. And they do. Um, artists don't really want to have their acts widely communicated because they want people to show up and buy tickets. So I could see why you wouldn't want to have it, you know, a perfect photograph limits the number of people who are going to come and see you live. So they, they kind of prevent that, but that's what makes it challenging. So you, you know, especially rap, I've always loved rap. I I appreciate the raw emotion that comes out of a rapper, um, especially when they're on stage. And so you try to make that photograph where you're going to show a personality through you know, they're, they're rapping, they're on stage and they're performing their lyrics pretty much always looks the same. You have an artist holding a mic and they're, you know, they're pretty aggressively <laughs> bouncing around the stage. So you try to just get that moment that actually expresses their personality and shows that true emotion that drives them to do this crazy career that makes you travel the
0: world, you know, 365 days a year doing show after show. Mm-hmm. Aaron, how important were those early experiences? Um, you know, being a local Eugene guy myself, obviously grew up going to the Wild Hall, the Cuthbert, and all these great venues. Uh, you talk about the difficulties and kind of the, um, I guess the un, un, uh, I guess the unideal uh, situations or kind of contexts you have to work in, um, especially as a photographer in loud settings as well as settings that have unpredictable lighting. How important were those early experiences where you kind of chased your passion in music but also how to kind of navigate um, how to get better as a photographer and how to kind of get your foot in the door.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's, I mean The thing about these um, lower scale venues is it's a give and take. So the the lighting is going to be unpredictable. You may have an artist who chooses to have a ridiculously looking red filter on them the entire night, which <laughs> ends up with a very boring photo post, but In those small venues, you also see the true artistry come out because they don't put on commercial productions. It's a true sense of what that artist is trying to get across. A lot of times they're trying out new material, especially when they're coming to, you know, markets that are as small as Eugene. So you're not expecting to fill a basketball arena or a football stadium. You have 400 people who came and they're going to be pretty invested in your show, no matter what you do, as long as you're not terrible. So they experiment, you get to see some of the, you know, the things that they've never shown the world before. And it's just raw. And I like that. That's the thing about photography, especially for me, is I like documenting life. I'm not as into creating images as I am finding moments that are actually raw and real and human emotion and making that look beautiful. So you have these venues that that force you to find the
0: beauty in what is a dark and often dreary image. Mm-hmm. Being in a concert, at a rap concert especially, as someone who basically just figured out it, it on his own and kind of had this passion for photography as well as, as music, um, how did you kind of approach shooting these type of venues and some as someone who also, you know, used to go to concerts as a bystander and someone who basically just used to go for fun, but now as a photographer, as someone who's trying to get into this space and this industry, you had to kind of reconfigure maybe your approach and maybe how you viewed a concert even though you've been to those those same venues many times.
1: It's so different. That's that's a really great point. I mean, I've I've been to so many shows that I you know, you lose track and they all kind of blur together. You you stand in a pretty sweaty crowd of people and try to get as good of a view as you possibly can. But as a photographer, I mean, you gotta fight your way to get those angles. You gotta get as close as you can because, you know, like we've said, the lighting is terrible and you you just wanna get that, that hero shot is what I like to call it. You try to get right up front, front row, looking right up at the person so that you get this prominent view of them where they're, you know, they look larger than life. Um, And so you you start approaching these shows just like you would approach any other photo story. You have to be able to express what the entire event was like. Um, So instead of standing and you're taking in one view, you want to show what everyone saw there. So you want a back of the crowd shot so you can feel the scale of the show. You want to get up front so that you can see them front and center just like that, that incredible person who decides to wait three hours and get the front row spot, see what they're seeing. You wanna express all of that. It's the, I think one of the things about concert photography for a lot of people is they get caught up with being on stage and the, the images kind of look manufactured, but I like people who can show what a genuine show, they, who can express what a show looks like to an average consumer. and and put you there in that space.
0: Mm -hmm. I want to ask you one more thing, just kind of in your early stages. Um, You are a student at the SOJC, you're a soon to be graduate. I know there are plenty of very talented faculty there, including people like Dan Morrison, who I know you've taken classes with and also uh, highly respect. Um, As someone who does sports, also does concerts, who also has, you know, have done stuff in nature as well. uh, From a technical standpoint, what type of workshops and what type of classes did you kind of take early on that maybe give you inspiration or gave you kind of a reference point to kind of bounce off of when you got into these spaces and, and these live, either sporting events or live concerts where you kind of pulled from and also continue to use today. Because I know that classes, maybe not every class is gonna to be to your benefit or maybe you're not gonna take away everything that you learn in class and use it in the field. But I also understand that photography is one of those skills and one of those, those professions where you need to have a certain level of technique to be, to achieve a certain level of photography. So I understand that you probably have taken a lot of workshops and have had tireless hours, you know, editing your photos. So where do you kind of pull from and, and, have, and what type of classes do you take at Oregon?
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think the biggest thing about photography is it's kind of a, a dual headed profession. You have to have, like you said, the technical ability. You have to learn to see light and find those images in life where you may not have a studio lighting set up. So you have to be able to move your feet and get yourself in a position that that image is gonna look how you want. And that's, you know, it's probably like 30% of what the actual skill is because once you have it down, it's just like any other skill, it becomes muscle memory. The biggest thing, and I think the most underestimated part of being a great photographer, is the storytelling. And I, I have to credit Lori Shantz, who is actually a reporting instructor for teaching me a lot of that and finding story in the lives of real people. That's, that's what makes a photograph interesting is that it, it puts across a single moment in a real person's life that means something to them. So whether that's an emotion, whether that's movement, whether that's the prominent light that sets them apart from their environment. You want to be able to express what life is like for a particular individual. And that takes an, it takes a, a wide eye, it takes a inter, introspective soul to be able to look into life and find what makes it fascinating because the world is a crazy place and you know, you have to be able to step into someone else's shoes and across their story to another audience who doesn't know them, who has very little context outside of what you provide them in this single image. And that's, that's the biggest thing. So, I mean, I have to shout out my, my reporting instructors because it is much more about telling stories than it is being technical.
0: How much impact did working at the Emerald, I know that you weren't there all four years, but you joined and, and made the most of it how much of the joining a student newspaper where there's a lot of talented journalists as well as some of the best sports photographers in the country at the collegiate level um, in regards to um, opening your eyes to, to how to tell a great story
1: I have to say that this it's only been a year but the the Emerald has given me the, the experience and the knowledge that I, I was lacking definitely as I worked on my own um, like as you said you, you know working in that newsroom there's in um unbelievable amount of talent in the Daily Emerald, and it has such a great heritage of of professional storytellers now. Um, I mean, I I came up and was inspired by the photographs of Ryan Kang and Taylor Wilder, and, and I, I still strive to create images of that quality, and to work with reporters who are some of the best in the country is incredible. One of the things that I think I gained the most from the Emerald is not from the big events, the sports, the concerts that I've been able to cover, but some of the more underlooked events that happen on campus and really give you a great perspective of how people who aren't often represented in media can still have incredible stories to tell. So I think a great example is uh, just this last week, I covered the Take Back the Night march, which is a um, a rally and a march through the Eugene area um, to promote um, sexual assault awareness. And it's it was one of the most stunning galleries that I think I've made in a while because it's such a fragile and raw issue that it just comes across so well visually. So there are groups of students who paint their face half, um, half painted and leave the other half completely bare to represent um, the fact that there are 50% of the women around the world who are affected by sexual assault actually do not survive the encounter. And the other half have to live with that experience for the rest of their lives so these it's such an intense topic that you have to learn how to you know how to tell the story accurately but to also express the the anger and hostility that is in that and I've had so many of those experiences covering things that I never would have thought to cover before and I think that is one of the best qualities of the Emerald is we're, we're telling the stories of campus which are doing our best to do that and it's often kind of difficult. I mean, it's it's not something that I had ever done on my own, and I have to thank everyone there for pushing me to
0: do so. How did you separate uh, telling that story specifically and others uh, alike uh, from a digital standpoint and also from a print standpoint? Because I think people under- need to understand, and I think a lot of readers out there may not even understand there is a, a black and white difference in a way in regards to how you approach telling a story digitally versus how you verse versus, you know, telling a story on print. Because especially for photographers, I mean, you can talk about, you know, double decks, uh, duckers um, that, that cover two pages or you can talk about one cover photo for the front of the newspaper. Now, you've done all of those things for something like Take Back the Night, um, which you eloquently described. Uh, how did you approach kind of uh you know, shooting it in a way where it could it could fit both digital platforms as well as print because I think that it is important to not only um, be able to do both, but also do uh, both very well.
1: It's such a interesting dynamic between print and digital because they are so different and yet they should be so alike if you think about it. I mean, an image is an image no matter where it is, but when it comes to print, You have to attract people's attention. It's one of those things that if nobody's picking it up, then it doesn't really matter. You have to inspire someone to want to read more, especially, like you said, with with a cover photo. It has to be interesting enough that they're going to be willing to read more, but also mysterious enough, if that's the right word, to, to... Intrigue them and not give them the entire story if you if that makes sense And so I think you know leading into the sports topic um, photo editor now Adam Eberhart used um, a great photo for the cover following the final four loss against North Carolina, which is um, Just Dylan Ennis on the floor pulling his jersey realizing that his college career is over um, so it gets across that the sadness that occurred at the end of that game, but it also forces you to read on. You want to pick that paper up and and find out why he is that emotional. Whereas with digital photography, you have so much more room to navigate, um, especially with photo galleries. People are willing to click through much more than you you think. Um, so you don't have to worry quite as much about getting all of that information and all of that intrigue into one image. I think that's what I like most about um, digital photography is that I can tell a complete story. I can I can show you what pre-event looked like. I can show you how all of the characters in that story were interacting during the event and the fallout of that, which is such a, it's so much more of a flexible pattern than you have with print. And it's it's much more free.
0: I think that's the best part. You mentioned the Final Four. We're about a month removed from Oregon's historic run to the Final Four. I know you were there every step of the way. Uh, I have, a, I have a, kind of a two-part question here. Hey, um which, which type of lenses and what type of camera did you bring with you specifically to that event? Um, I know that when we went to the National Championship game with Mariota um, my junior year, uh, I know that Taylor Wilder and Ryan Kang had rented out some ridiculously expensive lenses um, just for that event. I know that that is very important to you know covering an event um, not only you know shoulder wish shoulder by shoulder with some of the best in the country, but also just you know making sure that you have all the tools you need to tell the story that you need to at that level, and then be. What was that experience like? It, you have to admit that it's probably your, in regards to sports photography, that has to be a high for you, uh, at least up until this point. And I know that once you get a taste of those type of events and that environment, um, you, you kind of want more and more. So uh, if you could answer those two questions about the Final Four, I think that uh, shed a light, a light on uh, what it's like to be not only a, a student photographer at that kind of event, but someone who um, really did it for the first time and had to, again, have a first type of experience at that, at that type of environment.
1: So the beauty with basketball is that compared to most sports, it's it's not a very large scale event. A basketball court is always the same size and it's not very big. So you don't, the environment, the equipment that you want is not as, it's not nearly as advanced as you're going to need for a football game, which is nice. So I always use a 70 to 200 millimeter lens so that you can get those nice dropped images of the, you know, the face as they're slamming the ball in a massive dunk. Chris Boucher was one of the best with that. His lengthy arms always made those dunk shots really fascinating to me. Um, and then you want a wide lens. I always like to go at least to a, a 50 um, just so that you can get the pure scale of, of that court. And that it was even bigger in the final four shooting in a football stadium, which is so strange. It was one of the weirdest things that I've experienced to, to stand on a basketball court in a stadium that fits 65,000 people is just unreal by the time that you walked to the very last seat and even just the first row You're you know, you're a couple hundred feet back from the court so it was that was a trip and I, I think the the wide lens is really good at showing the pure scale of that And I also just like how it looks. I like seeing a full body basketball shot um, of them hanging from the rim or a body in mid-flight as they throw a a no-look pass. Um, But like you said, we did get the chance to rent out equipment at these big events. Um, Both Nikon and Canon usually bring representatives and plenty of gear for the professionals to use. So we got to bring out a brand new Nikon D5 DSLR and we also rented uh, crazy lens, um, which was a a zoom 500 millimeter, which is just massive because um, unlike any other basketball event I had done, they had an upper photo area, which was actually just about on the concourse and as far away as you can get and still be able to make usable images basically. Um, So we just got to use this crazy lens, which was Funny to me, I've never used something that big, let alone in a in a indoor setting. Um, I've never even brought that out for a football game, um, so it was kind of learning on the fly. But it's it's cool to see, you know, the the scale of these huge athletes from that far away. It kind of humanizes them. I think that was what I took from using these bigger lenses. But like you said, it is by far the pinnacle of my sporting career so far working in sports journalism, um, to sit next to photographers that I had idolized my whole life, people from Sports Illustrated and Getty Images who have, you know, 20 remote cameras lined on the floor and brought in their own Apple monitors, basically building a workroom, was just unbelievable to me. It's It opens your eyes to what the industry actually is and what a huge market and business that sports really can be. Um, it's The Final Four is unlike any other sporting event that I have attended because the sport doesn't almost feel like a sport anymore. It's almost like a Hollywood production. You're getting access to athletes who rarely speak to the media throughout their regular seasons. You get filmed practices, which especially at Oregon never occurs And for these practices, you have 50,000 fans who, you know, skip work on a Friday to watch teams go through a very limited warm-up practice. So it was just crazy to me, and I, I feel really lucky to have gotten to do that with my fellow Emerald reporters because all of us really recognize what a blessing that is half of the people that we were working on alongside have been in the industry for as long as we've been alive, if not longer. So it's really an honor to be able to cover such a high profile event and to do it for Oregon, who hadn't been able to reach that point in 70 years is just crazy to me. Um, Mm. I just, I'm very lucky and I learned a lot from that experience for sure.
0: Mm. One last thing about the Final Four, what was that environment like in the locker room after the game? Um, this Oregon team, you know, really had it all. They, they had this this certain aura about them. They had all the storylines going for them. They were calling Tyler Dorsey Mr. March. It just felt like one of those teams that just, you know, you have the whole storyline of them not being back to the Final Four since winning it all for the first time in 1939. And you have all these fans that are just so desperate to see Oregon um, not only win a championship uh, in football, but also in basketball. And you could really see the growth and the passion for this for this fan base and then they fall short um just in the game that they just couldn't make shots and, and just weren't themselves um, right after the game's over you know everything's chaotic um you don't really have time to think you have to kind of just act in the moment what was what were those those you know couple minutes right after the game couple moments right after the game where everyone's going crazy and you have to kind of digest that scene and then as the night goes on you kind of slip into the locker rooms and you get to see these guys in raw motion it can't be easy and it's never easy seeing grown men cry. What was that environment like? And what was what was the locker room scene like?
1: Oh man, it was, chaotic is a great word to describe it. You know, I could, I was at the upper photo area. So it took me a few minutes to get back down. I actually didn't get to go in the locker room. I had to get to go. I'm pretty glad that I didn't have to witness that. Um, but like you said, that's the image that's gonna stand out in my mind personally is, you know, I'm sitting up there observing, these guys walk off the floor many of them now we know for the last time in an Oregon jersey and just break down you know uh Jordan Bell who took a lot of the blame for that loss not having uh blocked out North Carolina defenders um excuse me um offensive uh rebounds you know which is not at all his fault but anyways so he you know he handled handled it pretty well um went and spoke with um, the other members of his team before they exited the floor, and then as he, you know, steps away from stepping off the court and making his way back to the locker room, just falls, collapses with his face in his hands, and he's just sur- immediately surrounded by reporters and photographers, and you could just feel the hurt. You know, they had, they were a special team. It's undeniable that this is one of the best rosters that Oregon basketball has ever seen, and they really did feel like a national championship worthy group. They they came together, none of them were selfish. They had big moments, but they could also handle uh moments of adversity and you know, it just hurt. So, you know, I a lot of the the fan came out in me a little bit, but as you said, you have a job to do and you kind of just spring into action and wait for that emotion to come out and show it as best as you can, but you know, the the Eugene community as you said has been waiting Duck Nation has been waiting for a national championship in a major market sport for a while with now two losses in football in the national championship and then to get this close and lose to the eventual national champion in in a game that really was just so back and forth was it was just rough you could tell that you know Dylan Brooks, Tyler Dorsey they didn't expect it i think that they they were relying on that big moment that they had you know had come to fulfill every time they needed it throughout the season was just gonna was gonna spark that last win and they came up one big shot too short and you know as much as it does hurt it was a great way I think for my experience to to recognize that you know as a sports photographer you're not a fan anymore it's a it's a job and you have to cover wins losses all the same
2: so you talked about stories and and moments and sort of what they mean and you kind of covered some of them but I really want to delve deeper because I want to hear the stories and I want to I want to see I want to talk about your photos and your stories from your perspective and what it really was like going through that moment and what were those shots that made you feel and and resonated with people and I want to start with music and I know you're a really humble guy, but this is your chance to brag, okay? So so it's okay to name drop. So give me some like give me like a in starting in music, like what was one of the photos or at least a couple photos where you really felt like this this was the pinnacle, this was what I what I really this is what I came to to shoot and, and give me the story behind it and the emotion, of what was going on in, in that moment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there, there are definitely two shows that stand out to me. The first was um, actually the first rap concert that I ever got to do. And it was a surprisingly well-lit show in the wow. Um, but Denzel Curry um, came to Eugene kind of on a whim. He, uh, he got on the ticket, I believe, a month before um, I had even got my press pass. So it was kind of an out-of-nowhere show. And you could tell as soon as I showed up that it was ran that way. Um, I walked in, and surprisingly enough, they went and asked Denzel Curry if he knew me because I had been um, assigned a press pass through his booking agent. Um, and obviously, he does not know me, so um, I'm face to face with Denzel Curry. He's trying to work through his pretty intoxicated state to recognize me, which <laughs> would never have occurred. So we're looking at each other awkwardly. He then leads me to his to the green room, and. I'm just kicking it with him in the back as they're, you know, smoking J's and he's getting ready to go do this show. I have no idea what I'm doing here. Um, It's one of the first shows that I had done in quite a while. Um, So I'm trying to impress him a little bit. I'm taking shows or taking photos in the back room and, you know, he loves it. But we go out on stage and it, it blew me away. He was so different than he was just as a person because he kicked it, just like any friend would you know we're just we're laughing we're talking about what he's going to do tomorrow and all this stuff and then he takes the stage the lights completely go out he drops to his knees and this red normally i hate red lights i just i think that it ruins every photo but with him he had this almost demonic facial expression so he's on his knees his eyes are practically rolled in the back of his head and then the base is just that you know that sudden thong you yeah, know it's just an extended bass sound and the the crowd is you know just getting so anxious the anticipation is building and all of a sudden he opens his eyes and the music drops and it was just one it was that moment just like i said that you know you snap it and looking at it as an image it's cool it's it's not the greatest photo I've ever taken by any means, technically or by story, but it's one of those things that you read a caption or if you were there and you you can look back on that memory, it was incredible. He He had every eye in the venue immediately upon him as soon as he, before the show even started, which is, that's the thing that I love. That's what I like about music is you can turn an entire room's attention on you almost instantaneously if you're actually good at it. So that one stands out. And then uh, fairly recently, actually, I saw Vince Staples, who is by far one of my favorites out right now. Um, I saw him in the Roseland, which I think is a perfect venue for him. He's just, he's not one of those mainstream artists yet to where you're gonna get into the Moda Center or somewhere that big. And so the entire venue is completely sold out, had been for, I believe, two months before the show even began everybody is just ready you know they want the north north already absolutely as you as just everybody does yeah and he was the same way but in a different in a different style vince staples has this nonchalance about him where he just makes everything that he does look so easy that it it just invites people to to almost just follow him because he has that i'm a real person listen to my real stories and everybody is just down. It's it's genuine. And I love that about him. So throughout the show, he has these crazy visuals going on in the back where a random goldfish would float past for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> and then there's a flower blooming. It it really doesn't make any sense compared to the lyrics that he's, you know, aggressively throwing out. But I love that juxtaposition about him. So I have a pretty good a pretty good image of Vince just screaming into the mic with one eye open and then this this rose blooming behind him which is just so it's it doesn't fit it's it's that contrast that forces you to realize that there's a conflict in his music and that's just such a great way to do it in in a very limited media representation, that's that was one of the shows that stood out for sure. And you talked about being backstage with these guys, and like
2: as a fan of these musicians, and I think most of our listeners would agree that they are both they are also fans of both these musicians. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, like when you're kicking it backstage with these guys, I mean you're you're kind of in more of a professional role. But what are they? What are, what is it like in that green room with? with and, the, and I know these are not the only two musicians you've been you've been shooting. What are some of these like can you give me a, is there any funny stories or crazy things that you've seen in that green room or things that are different that stand out these these like crazy stories these, these
1: musicians that are touring like have you have you seen anything like what, what's the most interesting story you have back there you know there's there's not too many stories that stand out in particular what really gets me about the backstage artists is you know fans look forward to these shows for weeks in advance like you said I come into it with a professional mentality where you know this is a job I have to come cover an event and so there's a little bit of the stress you know you want to make sure that the technical side is going to be just right the images are going to come out quality and that you're going to be able to tell this story accurately and then you go into this backstage area and it's it's like another sunny afternoon to these guys you know they do it night in night out it really doesn't mean that much to them so almost all of them are drinking casually they're all surrounded by friends that, you know, they have no influence on the music outside of, you know, just being in in their lives, but you know, they're not doing their lights, they're not doing video. They're just there. They're literally just friends who are following their homie doing one show after another. And so it's just so casual, you know. You you go two steps outside and you have you know, heavily intoxicated college kids most of the time when I'm there <laughs> who have been just hyped on this show all night and then you you step into that room and all of them are just like it's nothing they're just chilling on the couch half of them order in you know what really gets me is uh probably five of the artists that i've gotten to actually experience backstage all of them order off the waffle i don't know why but off the waffle (laughs) is that you you it's good it's good good, (laughs) it's It's really good good. it's It's good good. 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 they love it they love that that sweet waffle taste, but that has always surprised me. That you know, every time they have delivered off the waffle to the Wow Hall.
2: Okay, I want to move from music. I'm going to cover basically three sections of stories with you, and and I want to move from music to now like cultural events. You talked with Hayden a little bit about like the uh, Take Back the Night. Um, you kind of, you, you you went a little bit, but I, I, I'm in depth about that. But I, re, I do really want to hear like more in depth about that and in and. and and also, if there's any other cultural event that really stands out to you that you felt like this, this is like this is this was my best work, something like that. Anything that really stood out to you about any cultural event?
1: Sure. Um, it's not exactly an event, but I was challenged by uh, Professor last term, uh, Torsten Kellstrand, who is a phenomenal photographer. He's won countless awards. He's one of the best document- documentary photographers that I've ever met. And he pushed us to find a single subject and created a full photo story on them. And that subject needed to fit the criteria of being what he called unseen. Um, and so that that's a member of society who is either under or misrepresented in most media. Um, and so with the, the highly toxic political landscape that our country has, <laughs> I wanted to, to find somebody who exemplified that in the best visual way. And I was immediately drawn to guns. That's one of the most, you know, heated topics I think politically right now is the second amendment. So Eugene being such a liberal city, I knew that there had to be someone who was staunchly for the second amendment and would be willing to share their story and talk about how unique of an experience it is to be so staunchly for something that most of your community is fully against. And so I got to follow Derek LeBlanc, who is such a fascinating guy. So I'm, I'm from a pretty conservative town. Um, so I, I grew up around that, but it's been a while since I've really engulfed my life in that, that conservative of a lifestyle. So Derek is a NRA certified firearms instructor who focuses really uniquely on both women and children. Mm. So he, on the women's side, he wants to inspire females to be motivated and confident carrying firearms with them most of the time, specifically to prevent sexual assaults and um, more, you know, this power gap conflicts where women are not gonna be as strong or as large as a man, you need a firearm. Mm -hmm. You should be willing to carry it and know that you can use it responsibly. So that's one side. The other side, which I found more interesting is he runs a nonprofit organization called Kids Safe. um, And it's specifically about teaching the, the child in a home of a parent who has a firearm, how to live and conduct themselves around those firearms. So you're teaching kids not to pick up guns if they find them in the house or in the house of a friend or on the street for that matter, you're teaching them that if they are out hunting or even using guns recreationally, that you are incredibly cautious to never point it in a direction that could even possibly harm someone. And it, it's just one of those things that people don't really talk about. It's not, you know, kid, child related gun accidents are certainly discussed in political landscapes, but not nearly as much as the simple right for an adult to own a gun and that's the thing is the responsibility doesn't end at just you and the people who are going to be around you when you use the gun it's around any person who lives around your life who may not have the experience with firearms so i got to do all these cool things he got to do his first in school presentation for this kids safe program, which is
0: especially in Eugene, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: In a, in a liberal city like Eugene to, to bring in an AR-15 for kids to learn how to handle safely is just unheard of. So that was fascinating. I got to go to some of his firing range classes for women and there, it was really impressive. You have, you know, women from age 20 to age 65 who are learning how to fire from the hip at a desk in case that situation would ever come. And and a lot of them were really good. It was crazy. (laughs) You know, they're, they're nailing these targets between the eyes every time. So that was definitely, I think it stretched me so much because as we've discussed, I'm mostly, I like to focus on events. It's one of those things that I want to go in. You have a, a pretty strict limit of when you get to take these photographs and you have to do the best that you can with that time. This was so different. You know, you're trying to find any time that you can to just experience this person's life and portray it for everyone else so that they get a good understanding of who that person is and why they have this ideology. Why does someone who has lived in Eugene his whole life and grew up in such a liberal environment staunchly believe that every person should have a gun. And he does. He's crazy. He wishes if it was up to him, every person who lived in the United States would own and carry firearms. Most of the time, he thinks that it would be a safer place. And now my last question before Hayden, and I jumped
2: down your throat about your inside view of the Oregon ducks, 2017, 2018 football team. Um, I want to ask you about the moments in sports that, you were behind the camera that meant a lot to you
1: so most of my experience has been with the ducks and this this season stands out obviously um I'm gonna pick one because it it still blows me away to think about um the first that it wasn't actually his first but the one that people consider the first the first buzzer beater from Dylan Brooks in the Pac-12 opener against UCLA was astounding it was by far one of the loudest sporting environments that I had experienced. I was not 20 feet away from Dylan as he was tackled by Jordan Bell into, you know, 40 fans who had just surrounded him because he just helped bring down the number two team in the nation. So that, it was just crazy, you know? It goes from being a game, you know? Let's be real, sport is a game. But in those moments, it becomes so much more. You can tell in those images and in their facial expressions, what that means to them. You could, you know, the pure joy on someone's face after hitting the incredible buzzer beating three-point shot. It's just so fascinating to me. You know, you get to see their personality in that split second. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of that, you know, what really has always gotten me is high school sports because it is so pure. There's there's really nothing. Yeah, give, the, me, give me a high school football story. Yeah. Or definitely. high school sports story. So to... to kind of segue into what you were saying with the 2017 Oregon football team uh, current safety now Brady Breeze, uh played for Central Catholic mm-hmm. and every year Central Catholic and Jesuit is by far the most contested um, Oregon high school football game it ends up sold out wherever it is if, even if that's at um, what it's now Providence Park but where the, or the Timbers play it's just a heated rivalry and it ends up with you know the largest number of D1 athletes every year. Both of those teams are just stacked. And this was two years ago now. They both you know, they were the two teams who were going to win the state championship. And they played the first game of the year. Which is crazy. You know, it never happens. So you have all of these talented players basically working out their summer kinks against each other. And so it made this pure event even more genuine because they're just they're trying everything they can you're it's it's practically back to schoolyard football where you're just throwing out everything that you can shoot um and so i am you know i'm right in line with the quarterback jesuit's quarterback as they're marching down the field and trying to tie the game and all of a sudden brady breeze who i didn't actually know at the time but is a phenomenal athlete if you're unaware of him now uh, make, jumps up and makes this one-handed catch And I have a great You know, he's just staring at the ball And just mm. Odell Beckham's it mm. Midair And to this day, I can't believe that he did it Like, the dude was 17 at the time And now You know, you look at him He's he's probably going to be If not a starter, then a major contributor On the defense next year And to just watch that progression And I that was that, that Moment of realization that this dude is gonna be something else. You know, that's I think that's what I like about high school is you you see these kids and you start to see that potential grow immediately.
0: Aaron, like Mason said, we wanted to also ask you about Oregon football. You going to the University of Oregon and working at the Emerald. Those are those are those those two things go hand in hand. And while Oregon football has kind of had a couple of down years in the last two to three years, you have Willie Tiger coming in, you have a guy in Justin Herbert who was a local kid. That looks to be the future of this program but before i ask you about kind of the upcoming season and what it's been like to cover oregon football especially with spring practices and the summer you know off season coming up i want to ask you about uh, the restriction of the university of oregon athletics and what it's like to uh, navigate that space um, under the restrictions and kind of rules that they've set in place, um, with which is you know obviously they're they're more than inclined to do. Um, I know Dave Wolford just announced that, and he's the the senior SID uh, for football and has been for the last thirty two years. I know he's stepping down in June. What has it been like with Willie Tiger coming in? I know he's kind of running a different operation that that Helfrich has had. I know that he kind of is trying to bring in his own culture. What has it been like as a a student photographer and someone who is there at those practices all the time and has to uh, figure out how to tell stories, but under a certain um, kind of restriction line?
1: Yeah, it's different, definitely. And uh, Oregon is definitely going to miss Dave. I still can't believe that he's... Choosing to step down after all this time, he is such a cool guy. Uh, you know, I haven't gotten to spend a lot of time with him, but especially over the last few weeks, you know, he was the, the running the show for all of the media members at all of the spring practices. But yeah, Oregon is such a unique brand. The University of Oregon and Oregon athletics, especially, is just so staunchly protected. Every person who controls the media has from day one, the job to limit the access of everyone that they can and try to present themselves as the most pristine program as they can be, as any good PR agency is gonna do. But with Oregon, especially in their ties to Nike, they represent so much more. I think that they, they step past almost any other collegiate institution in terms of protecting their student athletes and limiting media access which I think is good in many ways. These people forget that everyone on these teams is still, you know, they're growing up. They're immature, not immature. That's not the right word, but you know, they're young. They're still college students and they have just as much of a right to their own privacy as any other person. They just happen to be living their college lives in front of thousands and thousands. So, you know, it has good reason, but with Willie Taggart, everything seems different, man. He he is so in tune with the social media landscape and how much it means to recruiting that he has opened up practice. He's, he's opening his doors to interviews like no coach has done with Oregon in, you know, decades. It's been years and years since you've had a coach that willing to put themselves out there and be as much a personality as they are a leader for the program. So it's been a, you know, it's really different. I didn't get to cover football as much um, in the past season, so I don't have as good a perspective. But it's it's wide, widely known that, you know, Helfrich and especially Chip Kelly were closed-door guys. They didn't want anyone involved in the program that were not directly under their, you know, their control, their supervision, because they... They were old school coaches where you have one mentality, everyone has to buy in to this one scheme, and we aren't gonna expose that to the world. We're gonna keep that to ourselves and let us drive us. But Willie Tagger is so different. He wants to put everything right out there. He's genuinely himself, it seems like, all the time. And it's it's fresh. It's it's so new. To the school that I think it's it's going to be great for the program. It just gives it a new face, and that's kind of what they've been looking for. Oregon has had this identity as, with a, as the football program for a while now. They they've always had that run and gun type of offense. They've had the flashy uniforms, and you know it, that's only going to take you so far. And I think now that the rest of the landscape has caught up in both of those areas, now Tagger is you know, bringing them into the current media world and the entire landscape of presenting the school outside of, you know, just games on Saturdays, because they are so much more and people want to see who these athletes and what the program really is.
0: In regards to uh, navigating that day to day, um, just a follow up to that. Um, how have you kind of been able to, at least for, personally for you, I know you said that you haven't really covered football too much, but has it made you, almost forced you to uh, get a little bit more creative about how to find stories within that day-to-day, especially during spring practices and in the, in the offseason where it's kind of the same rotation of coaches and players. I know Willie Taggart is running a little bit differently, but you're basically seeing the top-notch guys and you have limited access and limited time. Um, how has that kind of helped you maybe even become a better photographer and storyteller in that way where you have to really be um, efficient with your time and also efficient with the shots that you do get um, whenever it comes
1: yeah both of those are incredibly true so you're only given you know a half hour to 45 max 45 minutes maximum to cover these practices because after that you know they they do want to close down and keep their strategies to themselves Um, so You got to work fast. You got to go. A lot of times you're mixing the need to find images that are going to tell the story from that day, as well as, you know, you have reporters who are going to work on individual stories. So you got to track down this player or this coach or be able to show this type of offense, for example. If you really, you you know, you have to balance your time between those two because you never know what you're going to get. But. It is also such a unique experience because, you know, it's it's still practice and every team has a routine and they go through it every day, you know, so you you go from warm ups to the Oregon does a really quick scrimmage where they basically run five plays with each offense to try to drive themselves all the way down the field. And then immediately they go into um, tackling drills. You know, so they have this the step-by-step routine, and you it'd be so easy to fall into the trap of making these same photos every day. But you have to find new ways to show your audience what the team is doing in ways that they don't normally think about. So it's so easy to get that that shot of the quarterback throwing downfield. But what I really tried to push was to you know make. Compelling images of the linemen, of you know even the the punters and the punt returners, people who don't normally get seen, but still have you know just as much of a stake in the team, and really do some fascinating things. I think one of the one of my favorite images from the spring season, and I had never seen anybody do this. It's a great idea, um, but they had all of the potential punt and kick returners down on the other side of the field, and to distract them while they were catching. They had a coach and a student manager with super soakers who Mm -hmm. would stand. And as soon as the ball was going to come, you know, crashing down into their arms, they would get sprayed in the face with this super soaker. And, you know, it's just hilarious. That's one of those. That's not something that anyone who is a fan of football is thinking about. But they love to see it It humanizes the the players and, and it shows how much work and how much unique effort is needed to really get to that pinnacle of talent.
2: Okay. I have a question about actual football. So I, cause you played football growing up. I know that cause I've been in your room and I've seen photos of you playing football. So given this access that you get, which is way more than any of us get, what's your scouting report? You, you got to let the fans know. Cause no one has seen, except if you're on the team, no one has seen more than you have seen at this point. I don't think,
1: what have you seen? Like what, what's, well, give me the scouting report. So it's so hard to tell. That's, that's it's such a cop-out, but, I mean, with a first-year coach, everything seems great to me. It's it's so... All of the players seem upbeat and invested in this Taggart mission. All of the coaching staff is more enthusiastic than any I had ever been around as a player or as covering other teams. They all just have this mentality that screams victory to me. It looks like they're going to be you know, a phenomenal team and they have a lot of the pieces. Luckily they had, um, seniors come back that nobody expected, you know, Darren Carrington stayed around. Mason Crosby is still here. Royce Royce Freeman is a huge pickup and they, you know, so they have these pieces that they should be a great team next year, but there's always going to be that question mark because it's still different. You have no idea how, any of these coaches are going to react to that first loss because I, they don't look like an undefeated team to me. They're not going to go to the national championship next year. So you assume that after that first loss, that's going to be one of the biggest question marks is how are they going to come back? Because it's really easy to be really confident while you're practicing against each other mm-hmm. versus you know going against the top competition in the country. And you know, you take that loss in Austin Stadium, perhaps. You know, it's it's happening more and more. So, what's that going to look like? But you know, every I don't know, man. They look, they look, they look. (laughs) Give me something. I want to hear it. I want to hear it. Yeah. I mean, uh, like Hayden said, Herbert looks like the future. He, for being so young and you know inexperienced, he is just a raw talent, and he's his mentality is beyond his years for sure. He doesn't. He doesn't look like a sophomore quarterback to me. He didn't look like a freshman quarterback when he went in last year, but he he just has those leadership skills, and I, I it was great for me to hear that um, Willie Taggart wants him to push that even further. He wants Herbert to be the unanimous captain on the team, and I think he needs to be. That's what Marcus Mariota was. That's what every great quarterback should be. You are the leader, and you got to push that team. But. You know, for being so young, for only having, you know, less than 10 starts under his belt, dude is good. That's definitely for sure. And like you said, Mason, you know, Royce Freeman is a phenomenal athlete. His draft stock definitely dropped last year. So it was honestly probably good for him to stick around, provided he can stay out of injury problems. But, man, he is a talented, talented player. He is you know, he's one of the best power backs, at least in the conference, if not the country, especially now that Leonard Furnett is gone. He's just unlike any other player. And I think another person who gets definitely underappreciated on the team is uh, Charles Nelson. Oh, yeah. He, yeah. that, oh, I still can't even believe some of the things that he does. They still let him uh, work some defensive reps, which I still miss because... I love seeing two-way players. That's just such a cool, unique thing now. Um, But, you know, from amazing catches to breaking off runs that are unbelievable because, you know, he's just snaking his way through defenses with this, you know, that tiny little stature. Hmm. He's just unique, and I really hope that this year will really be his breakout season. I think that, you know, he's never going to be that star player, but he has the potential to, to be a Keenan Lowe, to be, um, you know, I would say a Braylon Addison, because I think Braylon was such a team player that he never really stood out as that, you know, that star. Yeah. He just, he's going to be a reliable thing, and I think he's going to become one of Herbert's favorite targets.
0: Aaron, I want you to help us close out with with some personal perspective. And, you know, in regards to you, your background and someone who I know dabbled a little bit of advertising in the beginning of college to now emerging as a rising photographer, not only in sports, but also in just anything you want to do and and topics and events that you're passionate about. I want you to help us close with your kind of vision for what your career might end up being like. I know that that that's an impossible question and it's almost a cliche question in a lot of ways, but with how the industry is changing with how you know there's different types of storytelling you're looking at advertising agencies telling some of the best stories i think period in the industry right now i'm currently in social i never thought of being social but i'm starting to see that there is a lot of great and unique storytelling also on this platform and from your standpoint i know that you also see your perspective of how photography in 2017 and moving forward will look like and how how it still has a pillar among uh, the most important aspects of, of media in, in this industry. What do you envision you, you you personally kind of doing as you move forward in this, in this career? And how are you going to kind of uh, digest and kind of view um, how this industry is changing and what it's going to co- kind of go towards? Um, I guess if you kind of mix those two together, let's close with that.
1: Photography is a fascinating thing today because, you know, to a lot of people, it's not as prevalent as it used to be. Um, I've heard from plenty of people who ask once I tell them that I'm more focused in still than um, video, that, you know, I'm wasting my time. Video is the future. And I had a professor tell me one of the best quotes against that, that I had heard um, that, you know, video is a future, it's not the future. There's just like the written word has not gone out of style, you know, this medium is going to be just as prevalent 10 years from now as it was 10 years ago. So I, I look at it as a challenge. Um, just like you said, the, the media landscape is changing so quickly that photography is going to have to do the same. It's coming up in social more and more. It's being applied in ad in advertising, which I think is some of the best work out there. Like you hit the nail on the head advertising agencies are doing a great job of telling real human stories i still the heineken ad recently i don't know if you guys have seen yeah, that I oh, heard about man it, it was yeah. so good um so i i would love to see photography come back into the advertising world more which is it's going to be tough because you know as the world does push towards um digital video those images are going to be they're going to have to be more and more spectacular to keep people's attention. Um, In terms of my own career, man, like you said, it's that's such an impossible question. I'm really looking to travel. I think the the thing that I want my career in terms of my experience in the next few years is to venture out of the event style photography that I've grown so accustomed to Shooting and stepping more and more into those stories, like I did with Derek and the Second Amendment photo essay. I want to be able to immerse myself in people's lives and be able to express that to an audience who is completely outside of that. So, um, I'm still really interested in moving to Brazil in about a year. I've always been fascinated with South American culture, and I think finding a A niche in a country that not a lot of people are looking to move to and start a professional career in but still has such you know genuine human experiences to be shared is a great way to keep my foot in the door Um, and and also to broaden my view that's the more types of stories that I get to cover the more comfortable I feel telling any story because you you find these experiences and learn to find a story in whatever you're covering in any event, in any person's life, in whatever you choose to cover, you can find a story and that takes experience, that takes you know, those, those opportunities outside of the very very unfortunately smallly taped media sections on a basketball court or the first three songs of a concert performance that you're allowed to cover for event stables. So, you know, I'm looking to find those experiences that I never thought to photograph, because I think those are the ones that end up being the most interesting.
2: Aaron, thank you so much for coming on. Um, do you have anything you want to plug anybody you want to shout out anything you want to shout out? Like,
1: uh, first of all, I want to thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. It's definitely been an honor Um, In terms of plugs, follow me. I at I am underscore Aaron Nelson pretty much across the board because that's who I am. Find my work at Aaron-Nelson.com. And thank you guys again. I appreciate it. And to the
2: listeners out there of the warm-up podcast, Hayden and I are going to have some very, very big news about potentially going to a new platform. We will probably release a 30-second to 45-second pod making this monumental announcement And as always, if anything today that we've said has been a stretch, don't worry about it.